If you are new around us, we're in a series where we're looking at, uh, as Rich said, the Lord's Prayer. As what we're trying to do is say, Jesus seems to give us a framework to pray in order that it can help us uh, develop in our relationship with God, uh, who is Father, Son, and Spirit. And I don't know about you, but one of the things I've realized is that prayer can be one of those things that when I do it, I know it's meant to do me good, but sometimes can feel hard of what I do within my time of prayer and being careful that it doesn't just become some sort of shopping list of things that I'm asking God for or a moment where maybe I start off with good intentions. Uh, within a few minutes, my mind's drifting. Or that's to be honest, an exaggeration. Within 60 seconds, my mind is drifting uh, to be thinking about something else that I've got coming up or a conversation I've had or a Netflix show that I'm currently watching. And before I know it, that sometimes passed and I thought, wasn't I, wasn't I doing something? Oh, I was praying. And what we're discovering is this framework that Jesus gives us in respect to how we're to pray allows us to have these anchor points within each day to say, oh, this is what it looks like to develop our relationship with God. And uh, if you've been around, we've been looking through this prayer and seeing actually each week there's different elements that allow us these building blocks of how we can uh, extend and uh, stimulate and grow in our, our life of prayer. And last Sunday, we actually took a bit of a break from the Lord's Prayer and looked at a different prayer. And we had a visiting speaker with us, a guy called David Devonish, who looked at an unusual prayer within a list of names in the Old Testament, in 1 Chronicles, where it talks about a guy called Jabez and a prayer that he prayed. And I'm not going to repeat David's preach, but basically he talks about how that prayer has these key ingredients, one of asking God to bless two, of asking God to expand his influence, and three, of asking God to protect him. And David's encouragement was, they seemed pretty good things to to use to pray, and encouraged us this last week, both as individuals and to pray for one another in those kind of rhythms. And I don't know if you were around last Sunday how you've been doing that. I've been putting it into practice. One of the things I'm learning uh, through this whole series is that actually within prayer, it only grows if we do what we've been listening to as we have to put it into practice. And so this last week, I've been putting into practice daily, praying for myself, and then also praying for my family, and then praying for everyone in Oasis. And praying that prayer of blessing, if you remember, it was that call to say, God, would you bless me? And it's like an open-handedness in it. It's not, would you bless me in this way? It's rather, would you cause me to be blessed in a way in order that I'd be a blessing to other people? And for me, that's been something that's really struck me this week because, to be honest, we all live lives within certain tapestries, things that are going on. And for me, the reality of my week that's just gone is one that I'd not necessarily have planned. And so my wife, Lucy, and I are currently living with a diagnosis of her father. And so my father-in-law, two weeks ago, got diagnosed with terminal cancer. And we were told that he had just a few months to live. Now, it's actually looks as though it's become a lot shorter than that. And so this last week has basically been working with the rest of the family to ensure that everyone feels listened to, everyone feels cared for, and that my father-in-law ends up in a care full-time environment. And so he's now in a hospice. And that's been part of what my week's engulfed with. And in it, I've found that this prayer of Jabez isn't something that I then playing a kind of rhythmic way of just thinking, well, that seems a nice thing to pray, but rather it's been this deep sense of meaning and actually daily thinking, God, would you bless me in order that I can be a blessing to my family? 
in order that I can be a blessing to my mother-in-law as she kind of figures out what is life going to look like, in order that I can be a blessing to my wife who's working out what it looks like to grieve the loss of her father. I said, that's what it roots down to. And sometimes it's nice to tell fun stories and say, hey, this is how it is. But sometimes it's just good to tell real stories. Not that we all go, oh, poor Adrian, but rather we just say, oh, yeah, because we work this stuff out within the stuff of life. And I, I think it's so important we see that. But in terms of this moment now, I want us to look at the next part of the prayer that Jesus teaches us to pray as a community. Uh, and what we're going to see is that it's all about forgiveness. And forgiveness is one of those words that is so easy to say, but can often be quite hard to action. And we're going to get to look at this a bit more, but I also know that in respect to forgiveness, and we're going to see that Jesus underlines this one quite heavily, is that it's something that actually radiates out, produces light within the world that we live in. And so I remember a, a number of years ago now, probably 15 so years ago, I remember a friend of mine, uh, his wife was tragically killed in a car accident uh, by a drink driver. And at the court case where this man was rightly sentenced uh, to prison for, for the crime that he'd done, my friend actually was interviewed after the, the rule had been given by a, a local newspaper. And his comment was this, he's a follower of Jesus, he said, I forgive the guy who did this. He said, that's all I want to say. I forgive the guy who did this. Now, those simple words kind of radiated out from that point. And so this local newspaper run the story. Within a couple of days, he's been contacted by the TV news. And they want to interview him, not about the tragedy of his wife dying, but rather about how on earth can he say that he forgives this guy. And so I remember sitting in my friend's lounge with Andrew Gordon, um, who's playing guitar, just in case you're wondering, who's he? He's the guy who was playing guitar. He wasn't playing guitar at that point, but we're sat in this guy's lounge. Bizarrely, we were told to play drums. I don't know why. They just said, what are you into? And he said, percussion. He said, well, play some drums. And so we were there playing drums. I was thinking, I've never played a drum before. And so this film crew could get some back shots of us, and then they interviewed him. And all they wanted to know is, how can you forgive? Because forgiveness in the world that we live in jumps out. And so with that all in mind, I want us to therefore look at this next bit of the Lord's Prayer. We're going to look at um, Matthew chapter 6. And what we're going to discover is why Jesus sees this as so important is because the, the call to live in forgiveness, the call to know forgiveness is one that allows us to live a life of freedom. But before we get there, I want us just to read this. So Jesus says this, then this is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And then I'm going to add this verse in. At this point, we've always been kind of pausing at this point because it's like, oh no, that's the end of the prayer. But Jesus, and this is the only moment he does this with the prayer, he adds something to add emphasis to what he's shared. He says in verse 14, for if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. See, Jesus wants us to get hold of something that forgiveness is fundamental in following him. 
that forgiveness is something that he wants us to live with a big, bold emphasis on. And I want us to get to discover why as we go through this. But in it, we start off in, in verse 12, the NIV, which is the translation of the Bible. This is, it says that, we're to, that we ask for forgiveness of our debts. Now, in, that, in a day and age we live in where people are in, feeling encroached by debt, it kind of gets us to understand why this word is being used because actually they can come to that point of desperation if my debt is something that's overwhelming me that I can't seem to be getting out of. I feel imprisoned by it, unable to pay it off. And sometimes it can cause there to be tragic results where people think there is no way out. And if you like, the word that's being used here is trying to convey that. That it could have also been translated not only of debt but also of wrongdoing, or the, the fact that you just owe something more than you're ever able to repay, or can be revealed as sin. And if you like, Jesus then emphasized it again using a different word when he says, forgive when, uh, people when they sin against you in verse 14, and that word sin there is trespass, and he's linking the two of saying, look, we're not talking about monetary debt, we're talking about a moment where you realize that you've lived in a way that causes you to live with the result. And he says it's living with this way of sin. And sin's that word that we don't tend to like talking about because it has so many different negative connotations because of how it's been used. But ultimately what sin is, is that living out of what God's best is for you and I. And saying, actually, I don't want to live according to how you want me to live, God. I'm going to live how I want to live. And as I live how I want to live, actually that causes me to live sure of how you want me to live. And that's what Jesus is talking about. Where we live that way, it causes us to live out of God's best. And as a result of that, causes us to then live with an impact of it. An impact that we see at the very beginning of the Bible. So in Genesis 3, you start see the start of the story where we find there, humanity decides, I, I, I want to live not in the good of what you've got for me, God. And we often forget this, but Genesis 1 and 2 are just full of painting this vivid picture of how God creates this beautiful, wonderful creation, full and revealing the wonder of his goodness and love. And we forget that point, we rush to Genesis 3, but that's so important because God's design was that we get to live in the good of who he is. And in Genesis 3, humanity says, no, no, I want to live in the good of how I think we should live. And as a result of that, it breaks everything. It breaks their ability to relate to God, to relate to one another, to relate to the whole of creation. And then this thing comes in that was never meant to be there, was never in God's plan of his goodness and his love, and that's death. So much so that later on in the Bible, it'd say actually the wages, the cost of our selfishness is death. And so this is why Jesus is saying, man, it is important you understand that you can know forgiveness. You can know this being taken away. But then we could then look at it and say, yeah, but Jesus seems to say something that's a bit confusing here. So you see, both forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. In verse 14, for if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. See, suddenly it seems as though what Jesus is saying is that yes, we can know forgiveness, but it's conditional. It suddenly seems to question, is Jesus enough? 
Is what Jesus has done in his life, death, and resurrection really enough? Does it do enough to allow us to know forgiveness? Or is there something more? Now, if you're a regular around Oasis, you know that we pinned a whole series in the book of Colossians saying Jesus changes everything, full stop, that he is enough, that any time anyone says Jesus' life, death, and resurrection isn't quite enough, you also need to do that, it's a time to just switch off. And yet, is that what Jesus is saying here? No, it can't be. It can't be that it's Jesus' work through his life, death, and resurrection, and then my ability to forgive other people allows me to be forgiven. Because suddenly that means that Jesus wasn't enough. It's Jesus and my ability. And it's not that. We know that because actually if we go to the next slide, in Ephesians 1, verse 7, it says this, in him, Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. That Jesus is enough. He is enough that you and I can know forgiveness. Can know that sense of freedom from this, the cost of living with ourselves at the center. Then why did Jesus say what he did then? Well, it's been a while since I've done one of these if you're regular around Oasis, but I want to give us a formula or equation. And it's this, you see, I think that Jesus is talking about. He's saying that actually knowing forgiveness will always equal showing forgiveness. That the more you know and understand that you're forgiven, the only result of that can be that you are one who seeks to forgive. Because if you are not forgiving, it means that you truly don't understand what you've been, that you have been forgiven. You will always reveal what you've received. And so you can flip it around the other way and say, not only is it knowing forgiveness will always lead to showing forgiveness, actually you could say then, someone who truly shows forgiveness equals someone who truly knows forgiveness. And that's a marker of the follower of Jesus. That if you're not someone who is showing forgiveness, it brings a massive question mark as to whether you're one who's ever known the forgiveness. And so, I want us, therefore, to look at that, to look at those two things of knowing forgiveness and showing forgiveness. Now, maybe you're in the room and you're saying, well, Adrian, this is all very well, but you don't know the reality of my life. That's a really simple thing and very pithy thing to say. It kind of rhymes, doesn't it? Knowing and showing. That you can say that's easier because I've known forgiveness, I should show forgiveness. But if you truly understood what's been done to me, if you truly understood the shame that I've had to live with because of what's been done to me, you'd not say it's that easy. And for anyone in the room who's in that place, I'd say just hang in there for a moment because I do want to address that. I'm not going to belittle that because it's so important that we understand that that matters. But I am going to park it for a moment if that's all right. So we're going to Say that, that that person's sitting here for the moment, and we will come back, and I will remember them. But before we get there, I want us to understand the starting point is that we know that we're forgiven. It has to be. It has to be that we live lives knowing we're forgiven. Because it's only in that place, as I've said, that we understand what we've received, and therefore what we can reveal. And so the question then becomes, well, what does the forgiveness look like? Well, the forgiveness that 
Jesus offers looks like this. And so if you go to the next slide, in Hebrews 10, verses 11 to 14, I'm just going to look at two passages that allow us to understand this forgiveness. The first one's a funny old one, Hebrews 10, verse 11 to 14, where the writer writes this, day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. Now, at this point, what the writer here is referring to is the whole of the Old Testament, from Genesis 3 onwards where God instigates this moment of revealing that actually to deal with the problem of sin, of us falling short of who God is, something has to die. And with a 21st century brain, we look at it, and to be honest, I read some of it, and you read the accounts of pigeons being killed, and sheep, and lambs, and oxes, and bulls, and goats, and you just think, man, this is barbaric. But the point of it being there and however unpleasant it is, is in order that we understand actually that's what our sin causes. And what the writer here is saying that all of that stuff, all of those creatures dying, to kind of make a way so that we would be seen as sin-free was momentary. The next day, another thing needed to be killed. And it's there, and it, it's offensive to our ears because I think it brings a reality of what happens when we seek to live out of God's best for us. But then the writer continues here, he says this, but when this priest, that is Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. In other words, when Jesus died on the cross and rose again, it was then enough to deal with every sin of every person who will ever live throughout all time. And that's why he could then sit at the right hand of God. He said, it's finished, it's done. No more sacrifice needed. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. In other words, anyone who puts their faith and trust in Jesus, life, death, and resurrection, is forever forgiven. Which means that everything I've done, everything I will do, has been forgiven through Jesus. See, really, it is this, that when I was 16, to be honest, it was most of my teenage years, I was a a bit of an idiot. I can dress it up lots of different ways, but I was stupid. I did many different stupid things that just both did harm to me and harmed other people, many things that I am not proud of. But the reality is that Jesus dealt with it. And he dealt with it in an extent that allows us to understand the next passage of why it's so important. Psalm 103.12 says this, As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Transgressions is the things that we've done wrong, the things that fall short of who he is. And what it's saying is this, <clears throat> that when God forgives, he forgets. So at this point, you could be thinking, yeah, but can't you tell us what you did when you were a teenager, when you were 16, 17, when you were stupid? What's the stuff you did? We're intrigued. Now, why would I tell you that? Because God has said that's done and forgotten. I don't want to talk about it. Why would you? And the same is true for you. 
the stuff that maybe has plagued your life, the stuff that maybe you still think defines you, it doesn't. Because Jesus is able to offer you forgiveness that then says that stuff is done and forgotten. So then why does Jesus say in this prayer, daily live with this rhythm? Remember we looked at a couple of weeks ago, give us today our daily bread. Now we all like that one, that daily bread. It's like, God, give me everything I need for today to get through today. And you go, oh yeah, I like daily bread. But in the same breath, we're to say, and would you forgive me my sin? Like, a daily rhythm of that? But, but you've forgiven me. Yeah, he has forgiven me. So why is Jesus saying that to us? Well, because Jesus is a realist. Jesus is a realist, and he knows that even though we're pursuing him, we still do stuff and make choices that fall short of who God is and God's best for us. And therefore, Jesus in his desire for our best for us knows that we need to live with a short account, that we need to live daily understanding that we need forgiveness. Not for what's been in years gone by, not for what's going to happen tomorrow, but just what's happened today. Through the actions we've taken, the thoughts we thought, the motivations we've had, if we really look at them, we realize, man, some of those just fell short of who you are, God as fully loving and fully good. And Jesus is committed, and it's revealed through this prayer, to ensuring that we don't live with the consequences of not asking for forgiveness. So he wants to stop us from hiding. I've got a dog. It's a kind of strange comedy dog. It's not a real dog, it's a a cockapoo which is a strange comedy gut dog, and it doesn't shed a lot of hair, which really helps my son and I with our allergies. And so we've got this dog, and at this point you're thinking, why are you telling me about my dog? Hang in there, you'll see. Um, We've got this dog, and generally he's he's all right. You know, he's just there, he's kind of fun. Uh, He likes walks and things like that. But occasionally he does stuff that he thinks no one else knows about. And he's got this area behind our sofa in our lounge that is his domain, and he hides all the stuff that he thinks that we don't know he's doing. And so he'll be around the house kind of doing his cockapoo-type things and hopping around going, look at me, I'm amazing, Um, and can I have a haircut? You know, he's just doing that. And then you'll go into the lounge, and we'll peer over the sofa, and, I, and this is a real thing that happens, so peer over the sofa, and suddenly you realize that the box of chocolates, I thought one of our three kids had secretly eaten and hidden the evidence, actually was the dog. And so I'm looking over the sofa, and behind the sofa is this box of chocolates, no longer there, just the box kind of ripped to shreds, and then the chocolates unwrapped. Like, I don't understand how a dog unwraps chocolates, but... If someone can explain it, please tell me. But our dog has unwrapped chocolates and then eaten them. And in that moment, as I see that, then there's this, you've got to understand, my dog's called Ted. I then say, Ted? And this dog who's kind of jumping around, look at me, look at me. Suddenly, head down, ears down, will not look me in the face, eyes to the floor. And it's as though he thinks that in not looking at me, he's disappeared. And he goes right down, starts crawling across the floor as though he can hide. And then he hides in the place where I found all the evidence, thinking that's his secret place. And the thing is, I look at the dog, and I think, man, what are you playing at? And then I realize, but I'm like the dog. Like so often, 
I can find myself living in a way that isn't quite God's best. I don't know, I suddenly think, man, I just am tired and I want to feel a bit more satisfied. So I look at something or I try something and I think this falls short of who God is. But then I'm not thinking about that, but a bit later I am. And in that moment, I want to hide from it. I want to pretend it didn't happen. And I think, man, if I go invisible now, God won't see it. See, the two people who started the whole thing off who seem to do that as well. So you find Genesis 3, Adam and Eve have kind of got this point of saying, actually, you want to live outside of God's best. And then what do they immediately do? They hide. God who can see everything, and they hide in bushes. And then what do they do? Well, they hide and then try to cover their shame. Cover their shame by getting some leaves, like the worst thing you could ever do. Like, here's some leaves I fashioned. Like, man, at least design something a bit better, like a bit, bit of bark or something, I don't know. But leaves, poor job. But the reality is that we can do that, that we can find that we fall short of who God is. We make a decision, and then we find ourselves hiding. And Jesus wants to pursue us and say, no, no, don't hide away. Say, forgive me. But maybe it's not hiding away. Because if we don't do that, maybe it's that we start to say, well, there's this thing. And I know, Jesus, I want you to be the center of my life, but actually there's this area that I, I, I think I know better on. And we start to build a wall, and there's a lot of talk about walls at the moment, but we build a wall that kind of says, actually, God, there's this bit of my life, but you're not allowed in it. And we find ourselves saying, actually, no, there's this bit. There's this bit, God, you can have. But that bit, I'm just going to keep away from you. you. You can't know what's going on in here. I'm going to cause this bit to just be my domain. Yeah, you're the king. You're the king. I'm going to worship you. Say, you're the king, but there's this bit you're not. And Jesus wants to protect us from that. Why? Because actually it will always lead to the last thing, distancing. And this is the one that breaks my heart because I see it time and time again. Where people start off by just hiding. Hiding what they were doing in terms of saying, no, I want to live my way rather than God's way. And they then start to protect themselves. Saying, oh, you're not going to know about that. I'm going to pretend that that's not there to you, though I know it is. It's ultimately, it will always lead to people then saying, I just want to distance. Because actually, to open ourselves up to God in any way starts to shine the light on how we're hiding and the walls that we've built. As it starts by saying, I'm not, I'm not going to spend any time with God. I'm not going to pray. I'm not going to read the Bible. I've kind of got my way of thinking it through. Then it becomes this thing of, I, I don't want to really enter. When I come with a group of people to, to worship. I don't want to enter into that because as I do, it starts to expose me. And then we think, actually, it's uncomfortable being there, so I don't want to be there. And so I know I'll stay at home. And you find you've distanced yourself because... This God who longed for a relationship with you, you've said, actually, no, I want my way back again. And it's broken it. And Jesus says, no, no, I want to stop you from going this way. In order that you daily just keep coming back and saying, God, have open reign and view of the whole of my life. There's nothing hidden here. And God, I ask forgiveness where I've sought to take control again of my life, where I've sought to live how I think is best rather than how you think is best. 
And Jesus says, we're to live that way daily because it just keeps short accounts. And it keeps that sense of, oh no, this is all about relationship with him. But you see, it isn't just about us knowing forgiveness. It's also about us showing forgiveness. And Jesus tells this story, this very uncomfortable story, about how we're to show forgiveness. And I'm going to look at this just briefly in terms of showing forgiveness. And some of you are saying, really briefly, you? I promise you I'll try to be. Is we're going to look at it in terms of others, showing forgiveness to others and showing forgiveness to ourselves. But in terms of the others then, Jesus tells this story in Matthew chapter 18, where it's Jesus is quizzed by one of his friends, Peter, about how often you should forgive someone. At that point, you know that this is a hidden question. You know, this isn't the real question. Hey, Jesus, how often should I forgive someone? Like, at that point, you're thinking, uh, I think you've missed the point here. So Jesus says this most surprising and perplexing mystical answer. He says, 70 times 7. Now, at that point, it wasn't to test Peter's math. It wasn't that we can sit here and think, all right, well, that's how many times, and I'll keep striking it off until that person's reached their quota, and then I don't do it anymore. Now, what Jesus is saying is, you keep forgiving someone until you've forgiven them. And then after it, he then tells this unusual story. He tells the story of the unmerciful servant, which starts off with this guy who owes a king a huge debt, more money than he could ever pay back. And he's brought before the king and told he must pay the money back. And he said, I can't do it. And so the king says, well, I'm going to let you off. You don't have to pay anything. A debt that he couldn't pay, and the king says, no, it's dealt with. At that point, you may think, ah, I, I think I know what this is about. Oh, this is about the fact that I owed a debt, that I had sinned before God and couldn't do anything about it, and I needed one to come and remove it. Oh, that's what Jesus did. And then Jesus says, oh, this servant, though, he gets wiped, debt wiped free, and then immediately finds someone who owes him money, slams them against the wall, and says, pay up or go to prison. And the individual says, well, look, I can pay you back, but it's going to take time. Remember, the other guy, he couldn't pay back. This person saying, I can pay you back, but it's going to take time. And the servant says, no, it's done. You're in prison. And then it kind of has this dark turn where the king finds out about what this servant's done and calls him back and says, is this true? And he says, yes. And the king says, well, release the one in prison, and that's where you will go. And Jesus says, that's what it's like when you don't show forgiveness. See, what Jesus is saying there is actually because we know that we've been forgiven something so great, we therefore should always forgive. But if we choose not to, the only person it will harm is us. It will imprison us. I don't know if you've ever met someone who is imprisoned by unforgiveness. They may start off with just one offense and they're just there and think, I'm not going to let it go. And it just permeates their life as they continue. Permeates them in order that they just become bitter. Become bitter not only about the person they feel wrong to, but by everyone. Become cynical. Because someone who just has, is negative about everything and everyone. And it imprisons them in their unforgiveness. And Jesus says, this is what will happen. It will harm you. Therefore, how do we live forgiving others? Well, I'd say it looks a bit like this. I think it can be helpful just practically look at it. So I'm just going to look at four things to do. So firstly, I'd say how to forgive is to recognize what rationalize. 
What I mean by that is when you've been wronged, because we're human, we are not perfect, we do upset one another. When you've been wronged, recognize how you've been wronged. Don't rationalize it, don't say, well, it was my fault, or no, it didn't really happen. No, you, you say, no, this is what happened, and this is how it affected me. Then I say the next thing is then you need to express how it made you feel. See, when you're wronged, it kind of hurts. You, you feel like something has happened to who you are as an individual. You've been misunderstood, crushed, you've been rejected, whatever it is. You feel something, and it's important to do something with that feeling. And with that, I'd say, given we're talking about in the context of prayer, God, I forgive those who've wronged me, is I recognize how I've been wronged, I then tell God, this is how it made me feel. It may be helpful sometimes to talk to someone else to see, get them to show you and express how it's made you feel. Now, that doesn't mean that you go around telling everyone, oh, you never guessed what so-and-so did. Now, that, that's not what that is. Rather, you just get to express it. From that point, you then decide to forgive. God, as you've forgiven me, I forgive them for this, even though it made me feel like this. And then from there, the fourth one is then choose reconciliation. The point is that there is a way of making relationship right. In other words, that you don't seek revenge. Now, because everyone in this room looks very nice, I don't think anyone's ever going to grab a baseball bat and go to town on someone over something that's happened. You all look too nice. But I wonder how much we get to points of using our words like baseball bats about people. And we go to revenge by doing someone's character in. Is that we, rather in reconciliation, seek their best. We pray for them. And then I'd say sometimes it can be helpful to talk with the person who's offended you. It isn't always. Sometimes you can look at it and think, well, I can see what happened. I've not rationalized it, but I have forgiven them. And actually, to bring this up is just going to cause more hurt. Sometimes it's like, no, for us to continue, this needs to be brought up. Not with me going in, because I've expressed my emotion, isn't it? I'm going in, going, when you did this, this is how it made me feel. How do you feel? You're an idiot. It's not that. It's that we've come to this point of saying, do you know, when this happened, it hurt me, but I have forgiven you. But I wanted you to know this because I didn't want this to happen again. It can be helpful to talk about it. But do you remember I left that person sat here? And this is my kind of quick note. You see, for some of us, the reality is this, that someone has done something to us that is just incredibly painful. And it feels trivial to just say, oh yeah, I've known forgiveness, I'll forgive them. Because the reality is, it's just hard. And for us, I'd say there's two things. Firstly, this that when you forgive someone, it doesn't mean you return to be harmed. There's this amazing prof proverb that I like where it says, um, like a dog that returns to its vomit, in other words, like a dog that goes and eats its vomit, is a fool who returns to his folly. In other words, there's just some people who are destructive. They're just going to keep doing the same thing, like eating their sick. And because they're going to do it doesn't mean that we have to go and do it with them. And for some people, they're just harmful, destructive. And until their heart changes, that's what they're going to be. And we can forgive them, but we don't have to keep returning to take it from them. For some of us, we need to hear that. 
I'd also say, and I heard this recently, a podcast called Things Above, which if you've not heard it, it's a brilliant podcast series, Things Above, like nine, ten minutes long, really, really good. But in it, I listened to this one, and the, the guy who puts it together talked about this. He said, in God's kingdom, his rule and reign, there's room for can't, but not won't. I think it's so helpful in terms of forgiveness because sometimes for us that when we're living with something that has so damaged us, has caused us to live for years, decades with shame, it's not easy to just go, oh, I forgive them. And at that point, it's just recognize I can't do this yet. It's not that I won't, I can't. And Jesus has grace for that. Because can't says, I can't do it at this point, but I'm working towards a moment where I can. Won't isn't here. It doesn't have room. Because won't says, I will not forgive. And Jesus says, well, to live that way means you've never understood how you've been forgiven. That was then how we forgive others. But then there's also this thing of how we forgive ourselves. You see, I recognize that probably this is the one that I struggle most with. I can forgive other people. I can receive God's forgiveness. But then when I do something, particularly if I damage someone else, my actions cause someone else to be hurt, I implode. I implode of thinking, man, I often talk to myself in third person, just bear with me for a moment, and I just say, Adrian Hurst, what are you doing? You utter monster. And it's like in that moment, I've, I've just thought, well, I, I don't deserve to be forgiven. I, don't, I shouldn't be allowed off the hook on this one. And I look, oh, no, no, Jesus, forgive me. Yeah, I know Jesus, forgive me, but I shouldn't be allowed off the hook. I will just keep bringing it up in my mind. I can't believe you did that. Can't believe you did that. And the reality is, I find in many conversations I have with people is this is the one they also struggle with. And to kind of get us to the kind of pinch point very quickly, C.S. Lewis says this, I think that if God forgives us, we must forgive ourselves. Otherwise, it is almost like setting up ourselves as a higher tribunal than him. And for me, this just helps. I could dress it up in lots of different ways, but the reality is this. When I say I don't deserve forgiveness, I'm saying that my standards are higher than God's. And the reality of what I've seen of God is my standards are not higher than his. And so if he can let this go, surely I can. I came across this prayer that just really helps in terms of how do we then live forgiving ourselves for the sins that we do. I came across this prayer by Linda Schubert in her book, Miracle Hour, which is just this great book of set prayers to pray over an hour. It's phenomenal. It's only like a couple of quid on uh, Kindle. Um, And she writes this, Loving Father, I choose to forgive everyone in my life, including myself, because you've forgiven me. Thank you, Lord, for this grace. I forgive myself for all my sins, faults, and failings, especially whatever it is. I forgive myself for not being perfect. I accept myself and make a decision to stop picking on myself and being my own worst enemy. I release the things held against myself, free myself from bondage, and make peace with myself today by the power of the Holy Spirit. And I read this and thought, this is great. Like, if this was part of that pattern of prayer of saying, now I release myself, like, how much freer would we all be? See, we are to live knowing forgiveness. We are to live showing forgiveness. But it's also not just at an individual level, just briefly. It's just about us as a community, as a family, as a church. See, Jesus used this prayer, and this isn't 
forgive me, it's forgive us. That's profound. It means that actually the standard of who we're to be as a church, as a family, is a forgiving church and family, which means that we don't do this alone. We get to encourage one another to ensure that we're each living knowing forgiveness and each living showing forgiveness. It's also not only that we encourage one another, it's also that we each take our moment to be an example in it, to live this way, knowing that it causes others to celebrate as we come and remember, I'm someone who knows I'm forgiven. I'm someone who then gets to show forgiveness. So I don't hold on bitterly to how I've been wronged. I'm quick. I'm quick to, to show forgiveness to others. And I tell you what, if you live this way more and more, it causes you also to be quick to say sorry. So where does this leave us? So I say it leaves us in this place. We want to be formed by prayer. This prayer that Jesus gives us is to shape us as well as give us a structure of how we pray. And I therefore leave us with three questions, two uncomfortable ones, one kind of general one. Are you an I? When it says I, isn't that you are to evaluate me? You can do if you want to. Um, knowing forgiveness. That's like yes or no. Are you and I living, showing forgiveness? That's a yes and no. You're not going to ever ask closed questions. You always want to make it general and feel really nice. But I felt with this one, no, this is one. Let's just get uncomfortable. Am I yes or no? Are you yes or no? Because then what we need to do is say, what do I need to do next? And that's the big question. Because Jesus doesn't want to leave us where we are. He always wants to draw us forward into the life that he's got for us. A life that is about forgiveness. Do you know it? Are you showing it? Can I pray for us and then we're going to be done? Jesus, I thank you so much that your desire for us isn't that we settle for second best. Your desire for us is that we get to live in the wonder of the life that you've got for us. And I thank you this life is one that is to be governed and characterized by forgiveness. And I pray for every individual in this room. I pray that we begin to taste and see more of the forgiveness that you've shown us. And I pray that we'd receive it and know it. And I pray, Jesus, as we know your forgiveness, I pray, God, it would cause us to be those that are abundant in our ability to forgive others and to show it. I ask this for your glory, Jesus. Amen.